Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. This week, we bring you two stories by H.C. Bunner, The Nice People and The Love Letters of Smith. Bunner was part of the local color movement in writing. Around 1870, writers began to offer delightful vignettes of various sections of American people. Bunner wrote about real-life New Yorkers. In time, practically every corner of the country had been portrayed in local color fiction. The avowed aim of some of these writers was to portray realistically the lives of various sections and thus to promote understanding in a united nation, something we are still reaching for to this day, apparently. And now, The Nice People by H.C. Bunner. Well, they certainly are nice people. I assented to my wife's observation, using the colloquial phrase with a consciousness that it was anything but nice English. And I'll bet that their three children are better brought up than most of the... Two children, corrected my wife. Three, he told me. My dear, she said there were two. He said three. You've simply forgotten. I'm sure she told me they only had two, a boy and a girl. Well, I didn't enter into particulars. No, dear, and you couldn't have understood him. Two children. All right, I said, but I did not think it was all right. As a nearsighted man learns by enforced observation to recognize persons at a distance, when the face is not visible to the normal eye, so the man with a bad memory learns almost unconsciously to listen carefully and report accurately. My memory was bad, but I had not had the time to forget that Mr. Brewster Breed had told me that afternoon that he had three children, at present left in the care of his mother-in-law while he and Mrs. Breed took their summer vacation. Two children, repeated my wife, and they are staying with his Aunt Jenny. He told me with his mother-in-law, I put in. My wife looked at me with a serious expression. Men may not remember much of what they are told about children, but any man knows the difference between an aunt and a mother-in-law. But don't you think they're nice people? asked my wife. Oh, certainly, I replied. Only they seem to be a little mixed up about their children. That isn't a nice thing to say, returned my wife. I could not deny it. And yet, the next morning, when the breeds came down and seated themselves opposite us at table, beaming and smiling in their natural, pleasant, well-bred fashion, I knew to a social certainty that they were nice people. He was a fine-looking fellow in his neat tennis flannels, slim, graceful, twenty-eight or thirty years old, with a Frenchy pointed beard. She was nice in all her pretty clothes, and she herself was pretty with that type of prettiness which outwears most other types, the prettiness that lies in a rounded figure, a dusky skin, plump rosy cheeks, white teeth, and black eyes. She might have been twenty-five. You guessed that she was prettier than she was at twenty, and that she would be prettier still at forty. And nice people were all we wanted to make us happy in Mr. Jacobus's summer boarding house on top of Orange Mountain, 
For a week we had come down to breakfast each morning, wondering why we wasted the precious days of idleness with the company gathered around the Jacobus board. What a joy of human companionship was to be had out of Mrs. Tabb and Miss Hugenkamp, the two middle-aged gossips from Scranton, Pennsylvania, out of Mr. and Mrs. Biggle, an indurated head bookkeeper and his prim and censorious wife, out of old Major Halkett, a retired businessman, who, having once sold a few shares on commission, wrote for circulars of every stock company that was ever started and tried to induce everyone to invest who would listen to him. We looked around at those dull faces, the truthful indices of mean and barren minds, and decided that we would leave that morning. Then we ate Mrs. Jacobus's biscuit, light as Aurora's cloudlets, drank her honest coffee, inhaled the perfume of the late azaleas with which she decked her table, and decided to postpone our departure one more day. And then we wandered out to take our morning glance at what we called our view, and it seemed to us as if Tab and Hugenkamp and Halkett and the Biggleses could not drive us away in a year. I was not surprised when after breakfast my wife invited the breeds to walk with us to our view, the Hugenkamp Biggle Tab Halkett contingent, however, stirred off Jacobus's veranda. But we both felt that the breeds would not profane that sacred scene. We strolled slowly across the fields, passed through the little belt of woods, and as I heard Mrs. Breed's little cry of startled rapture, I motioned to Breed to look up. By Jove, he cried, heavenly! We looked off over the brow of the mountain, over fifteen miles of billowing green, to where, far across a far stretch of pale blue, lay a dim purple line that we knew was Staten Island. Towns and villages lay before us and under us. There were ridges and hills, uplands and lowlands, woods and plains, all massed and mingled in the great silent sea of sunlit green. For silent it was to us, standing in the silence of a high place, silent with the Sunday stillness that made us listen, without taking thought, for the sound of bells coming up from the spires that rose above the treetops, the treetops that lay as far beneath us as the light clouds were above us, that dropped great shadows upon our heads, and faint specks of shade upon the broad sweep of land at the mountain's foot. "'And so that is your view?' "'asked Mrs. Breed after a moment. "'You are very generous to make it ours, too.' "'Then we lay down on the grass, "'and Breed began to talk in a gentle voice, "'as if he felt the influence of the place. "'He had paddled a canoe in his earlier days,' he said, "'and he knew every river and creek "'in that vast stretch of landscape. "'He found his landmarks and pointed out to us "'where the Passaic and the Hackensack flowed.' "'invisible to us, hidden behind great ridges "'that in our sight were but combings of the green waves "'upon which we looked down. "'And yet on the further side of those broad ridges and rises "'were scores of villages, "'a little world of country life "'lying unseen under our eyes. "'A good deal like looking at humanity,' he said. "'There is such a thing as getting so far above our fellow men "'that we see only one side of them.' Ah, how much better was this sort of talk than the chatter and gossip of the Tab and the Hugenkamp, than the Major's dissertations upon his everlasting circulars. My wife and I exchanged glances. Now, when I went up the Matterhorn, Mr. Breed began, 
"'Why, dear,' interrupted his wife, "'I didn't know you ever went up the Matterhorn.' "'It, it was five years ago,' said Mr. Breed hurriedly. "'I didn't tell you when I was on the other side, you know, it was rather dangerous. "'Well, as I was saying, it looked—oh, it, it didn't look like this at all.' "'A cloud floated overhead, throwing its great shadow over the field where we lay. "'The shadow passed over the mountain's brow.' and reappeared far below, a rapidly decreasing blot, flying eastward over the golden green. My wife and I exchanged glances once more. Somehow the shadow lingered over all of us. As we went home, the breeds went side by side along the narrow path, and my wife and I walked together. "'Should you think,' she asked me, "'that a man would climb the Matterhorn the very first year he was married?' "'I don't know, my dear,' I answered evasively. "'This isn't the first year I have been married. "'Not by a good many, and I wouldn't climb it for a farm.' "'You know what I mean,' she said. "'I did.' "'When we reached the boarding-house, Mr. Jacobus took me aside. "'You know,' he began his discourse, "'my wife, she used to live in New York.' I didn't know, but I said, Yes. She says, The numbers on the streets run crisscross-like, 34s on one side of the street, and 35 on the other. How's that? That is the invariable rule, I believe. Then, I say, This here new folk that you and your wife seem so mighty taken up with do you know anything about them? I know nothing about the character of your boarders, Mr. Jacobus, I replied, conscious of some irritability. If I choose to associate with them... Yes, so, yes, so, broke in Jacobus. I hain't nothing to say against your sociability, but do you know them? Why, certainly not, I replied. Well... That was why I was asking you. You see, when he come here to take the rooms, you wasn't here then. He told me wife that he lived at number 34 in his street. And yesterday she told her that they lived at number 35. He said he lived in an apartment house. Now, there can't be no apartment house on two sides of the same street, can they? What street was it? I inquired wearily. Hundred and twenty-first street. Maybe, I replied still more wearily. That's Harlem. Nobody knows what people will do in Harlem. I went up to my wife's room. Do you think it's queer? She asked me. I think I'll have a talk with that young man tonight, I said, and see if he can give some account of himself. But my dear, my wife said gravely, she doesn't know whether they've had the measles or not. Why, great Scott, I exclaimed. They must have had them when they were children. Please don't be stupid, said my wife. I meant their children. After dinner that night, or rather after supper, for we had dinner in the middle of the day at the Jacobuses, I walked down the long veranda to ask Breed, who was placidly smoking at the other end, to accompany me on a twilight stroll, Halfway down, I met Major Halkett. That's your friend? 
he said, indicating the unconscious figure at the further end of the house. Seems to be a queer sort of dick. He told me that he was out of business and just looking round for a chance to invest his capital. And I've been telling him what an everlasting big show he had to take stock in the Capitoline Trust Company starts next month. Four million capital. I told you all about it. Oh, well, he says, let's wait and think about it. Wait, says I. The Capitoline Trust Company won't wait for you, my boy. This is letting you in on the ground floor, says I, and it's now or never. Oh, let it wait, says he. I don't know what's in to that man. I don't know how well he knows his own business, Major, I said as I started again for Breed's end of the veranda. But I was troubled nonetheless. The Major could not have influenced the sale of one share of stock in the Capital Line Company. But that stock was a great investment, a rare chance for a purchaser with a few thousand dollars, Perhaps it was no more remarkable that Breed should not invest than I should not, and yet it seemed to add one circumstance more to the other suspicious circumstances. When I went upstairs that evening, I found my wife putting her hair to bed. I don't know how I can better describe an operation familiar to every married man. I waited until the last tress was coiled up, and then I spoke. "'I've talked with Breed,' I said." And I didn't have to catechize him. He seemed to feel that some sort of explanation was looked for, and he was very outspoken. You were right about the children. That is, I must have misunderstood him. There are only two. But the Matterhorn episode was simple enough. He didn't realize how dangerous it was until he got so far into it that he couldn't back out. And he didn't tell her because he'd left her here, you see, and under the circumstances... Left her here? cried my wife. I've been sitting with her the whole afternoon, sewing, and she told me that he left her at Geneva, and came back and took her to Basel, and the baby was born there. Now I'm sure, dear, because I asked her. Mm, perhaps I was mistaken when I thought he said she was on this side of the water, I suggested, with bitter biting irony. You poor dear, did I abuse you? said my wife. But do you know, Mrs. Tabb said that she didn't know how many lumps of sugar he took in his coffee. Now that seems queer, doesn't it? It did. It was a small thing, but it looked queer, very queer. The next morning it was clear that war was declared against the breeds. They came down to breakfast somewhat late, and as soon as they arrived... The Biggleses swooped up the last fragments that remained on their plates and made a stately march out of the dining room. Then Miss Hugenkamp arose and departed, leaving a whole fishball on her plate, even as Atalanta might have dropped an apple behind her to tempt her pursuer to check his speed. So Miss Hugenkamp left that fishball behind her, and between her maiden self and contamination. We had finished our breakfast, my wife and I, before the breeds appeared— we talked it over, and agreed that we were glad that we had not been obliged to take sides upon such insufficient testimony. After breakfast, it was the custom of the male half of the Jacobus household to go around the corner of the building and smoke their pipes and cigars where they would not annoy the ladies. We sat under a trellis covered with a grapevine that had borne no grapes in the memory of man. This vine, however, bore leaves— and these, on that pleasant summer morning, shielded from us two persons, 
who were in earnest conversation in the straggling half-dead flower garden at the side of the house. "'I don't want,' we heard Mr. Jacobus say, "'to enter in no man's privacy, "'but I want to know who it may be like that I have in my house. "'Now what I ask of you, "'and I don't want you to take it as no way personal, "'is have you your marriage license with you?' "'No,' we heard the voice of Mr. Breed reply. Have you yours? I think it was a chance shot, but it told all the same. The major, he was a widower, and Mr. Biggle and I looked at each other, and Mr. Jacobus on the other side of the grape trellis looked at I don't know what and was as silent as we were. Where is your marriage license, married reader? Do you know? Four men, not including Mr. Breed, stood or sat on one side or the other of that grape trellis, and not one of them knew where his marriage license was. Each of us had had one. The major had had three. But where were they? Where is yours? Tucked in your best man's pocket, deposited in his desk, or washed to a pulp in his white waistcoat, if white waistcoats be the fashion of the hour, "'Washed out of existence. Can you tell where it is? "'Can you, unless you are one of those people "'who frame that interesting document "'and hang it upon their drawing-room walls?' "'Mr. Breed's voice arose "'after an awful stillness of what seemed like five minutes "'and was probably thirty seconds. "'Mr. Jacobus, will you make out your bill at once "'and let me pay it? "'I shall leave by the six o'clock train, "'and will you also send the wagon for my trunks?' "'I hain't said I wanted to have you leave,' began Mr. Jacobus, but Breed cut him short. "'Bring me your bill.' "'But,' remonstrated Jacobus, "'ef ye ain't.' "'Bring me your bill,' said Mr. Breed. "'My wife and I went out for a morning's walk, "'but it seemed to us when we looked at our view "'as if we could only see those invisible villages "'of which Mr. Breed had told us.' that the other side of the ridges and rises of which we catch no glimpse, from lofty hills or from the heights of human self-esteem. We meant to stay out until the breeds had taken their departure, but we returned just in time to see Pete, the blacker of boots, the brasher of coats, the general handyman of the house, loading the breed trunks on the Jacobus wagon. And as we stepped upon the veranda, down came Mrs. Breed, leaning on Mr. Breed's arm, as though she were ill, and it was clear that she had been crying. There were heavy rings about her pretty black eyes. My wife took a step toward her. Look at that dress, dear, she whispered. She never thought anything like this was going to happen when she put that on. It was a pretty, delicate, dainty dress, a graceful, narrow-striped affair. Her hat was trimmed with a narrow-striped silk of the same colors, maroon and white, and in her hand she held a parasol that matched her dress. "'She's had a new dress on twice a day,' said my wife. "'But that's the prettiest yet. "'Oh, somehow, I'm awfully sorry they're going.' But going they were. They moved toward the steps. Mrs. Breed looked toward my wife, and my wife moved toward Mrs. Breed. But the ostracized woman, as though she felt the deep humiliation of her position, turned sharply away and opened her parasol to shield her eyes from the sun. A shower of rice. 
A half-pound shower of rice fell down over her pretty hat and her pretty dress and fell in a spattering circle on the floor, outlining her skirts. And there it lay, in a broad, uneven band, bright in the morning sun. Mrs. Breed was in my wife's arms, sobbing as if her young heart would break. "'Oh, you poor, dear, silly children!' my wife cried, as Mrs. Breed sobbed on her shoulder. "'Why didn't you tell us?' "'We... we didn't want to be taken for a... a bridal couple,' sobbed Mrs. Breed. "'And we didn't dream what awful lies we'd have to tell, and all the awful mixed-upness of it. Oh, dear, dear, dear!' "'Pete!' commanded Mr. Jacobus. Put back them trunks. These folks stays here as long as they want to, Mr. Breed. He held out a large, hard hand. I order of known better, he said. And my last doubt of Mr. Breed vanished as he shook that grimy hand in manly fashion. The two women were walked off toward our view, each with an arm about the other's waist, touched by a sudden sisterhood of sympathy. "'Gentlemen,' said Mr. Breed, addressing Jacobus, Biggle, the Major, and me, "'there is a hostelry down the street where they sell honest New Jersey beer. "'I recognize the obligations of the situation.' "'We five men filed down the street. "'The two women went toward the pleasant slope "'where the sunlight gilded the forehead of the great hill. "'On Mr. Jacobus's veranda lay a spattered circle of shiny grains of rice.' Two of Mr. Jacobus's pigeons flew down and picked up the shiny grains, making grateful noises far down in their throats. And now, the love letters of Smith. When the little seamstress had climbed to her room in the story over the top story of the great brick tenement house in which she lived, she was quite tired out. If you do not understand what a story over a top story is, you must remember that there are no limits to human greed, and hardly any to the height of tenement houses. When the man who owned the seven-story tenement found that he could rent another floor, he found no difficulty in persuading the guardians of our building laws to let him clap another story on the roof, like a cabin on the deck of a ship. And in the southeasterly of the four apartments on this floor, the little seamstress lived. You could just see the top of her window from the street, the huge cornice that had capped the original front, and that served as her window sill now, quite hid all the lower part of the story on top of the top story. The little seamstress was scarcely thirty years old, but she was such an old-fashioned little body, in so many of her looks and ways, that I had almost spelled her sempstress, after the fashion of our grandmothers. She had been a comely body, too, and would have still if she had not been thin and pale and anxious-eyed. She was tired out tonight because she had been working all day for a lady who lived far up in the new wards beyond Harlem River, and after the long journey home, she had climbed seven flights of tenement house stairs— she was too tired, both in body and in mind, to cook the two little chops she had brought home. She would save them for breakfast, she thought. So she made herself a cup of tea on the miniature stove and ate a slice of dry bread with it. It was too much trouble to make toast. 
but after dinner she watered her flowers. She was never too tired for that, and the six pots of geraniums that caught the south sun on the top of the cornice did their best to repay her. Then she sat down in her rocking chair by the window and looked out. Her eyrie was high above all the other buildings, and she could look across some low roofs opposite and see the further end of Tompkins Square with its sparse spring green showing faintly through the dusk. The eternal roar of the city floated up to her and vaguely troubled her. She was a country girl, and although she had lived for ten years in New York, she had never grown used to that ceaseless murmur. Tonight she felt the languor of the new season, as well as the heaviness of physical exhaustion. She was almost too tired to go to bed. She thought of the hard day done, and the hard day to be begun after the night spent on the hard little bed. She thought of the peaceful days in the country, when she taught school in the Massachusetts village where she was born. She thought of a hundred small slights that she had to bear from people better fed than bred. She thought of the sweet green fields that she rarely saw nowadays. She thought of the long journey forth and back that must begin and end her morrow's work, and she wondered if her employer would think to offer to pay her fare. Then she pulled herself together. She must think of more agreeable things, or she could not sleep. And as the only agreeable things she had to think about were her flowers, she looked at the garden on top of the cornice. A peculiar gritting noise made her look down, and she saw a cylindrical object that glittered in the twilight, advancing in an irregular and uncertain manner toward her flower pots. Looking closer, she saw that it was a pewter beer mug, which somebody in the next apartment was pushing with a two-foot rule. On top of the beer mug was a piece of paper, and on this paper was written in a sprawling, half-formed hand, Porter. Please excuse the liberty and drink it. The seamstress started up in terror and shut the window. She remembered that there was a man in the next apartment, and she had seen him on the stairs on Sundays. He seemed a grave, decent person, but he must be drunk. She sat down on her bed, all a-tremble. Then she reasoned with herself. The man was drunk, that was all. He probably would not annoy her further. And if he did... She had only to retreat to Miss Mulvaney's apartment in the rear, and Mr. Mulvaney, who was a highly respectable man and worked in a boiler shop, would protect her. So, being a poor woman who had already had occasion to excuse and refuse two or three liberties of like sort, she made her mind to go to bed like a reasonable seamstress, and she did. She was rewarded, for when her light was out, she could see in the moonlight that the two-foot rule appeared again, with one joint bent back, hitched itself into the mug handle, and withdrew the mug. The next day was a hard one for the little seamstress, and she hardly thought of the affair of the night before until the same hour had come around again, and she sat once more by her window. Then she smiled at the remembrance. "'Poor fellow,' she said in her charitable heart. "'I've no doubt he's awfully ashamed of it now. "'Perhaps he was never tipsy before,' Perhaps he didn't know there was a lone woman in here to be frightened. Just then she heard a gritting sound. She looked down. The pewter pot was in front of her, and the two-foot rule was slowly retiring. On the pot was a piece of paper, and on the paper was... Porter, good for the health. It makes meat. 
This time, the seamstress shut her window with a bang of indignation. The color rose to her pale cheeks. She thought that she would go down to see the janitor at once. Then she remembered the seven flights of stairs, and she resolved to see the janitor in the morning. Then she went to bed and saw the mug draw back just as it had been drawn back the night before. The morning came, but somehow the seamstress did not care to complain to the janitor. She hated to make trouble, and the janitor might think, and, and, well, if the wretch did it again, she would speak to him herself, and that would settle it. And so, on the next night, which was a Thursday, the little seamstress sat down by her window, resolved to settle the matter. And she had not sat there long, rocking in the creaking little rocking chair, which she had brought with her from her old home, when the pewter pot hove in sight, with a piece of paper on top. This time the legend read, Perhaps you are afraid. I will address you. I am not that kind. The seamstress did not quite know whether to laugh or to cry, but she felt that the time had come for speech. She leaned out of her window and addressed the twilight heaven. Mr. Mr. Sir, I... Will you please put your head out of the window so that I can speak to you? The silence of the other room was undisturbed. The seamstress drew back, blushing. But before she could nerve herself for another attack, a piece of paper appeared on the end of the two-foot rule. When I say a thing, I mean it. I have said I would not address you, and I will not. What was the little seamstress to do? She stood by the window and thought hard about it. Should she complain to the janitor? But the creature was perfectly respectful. No doubt he meant to be kind. He certainly was kind, to waste these pots of porter on her. She remembered the last time, and the first time, that she had drunk porter. It was at home, when she was a young girl, after she had had the diphtheria. She remembered how good it was, and how it had given her back her strength. And without one thought of what she was doing, she lifted the pot of porter and took one little reminiscent sip, two little reminiscent sips, and became aware of her utter fall and defeat. She blushed now as she had never blushed before, put the pot down, closed the window, and fled to her bed like a deer in the woods. And when the porter arrived the next night, bearing the simple appeal, Don't be afraid of it, drink it all. The little seamstress arose and grasped the pot firmly by the handle and poured its contents over the earth around her largest geranium. She poured the contents out to the last drop, and then she dropped the pot and ran back and sat on her bed and cried with her face hid in her hands. Now, she said to herself, you've done it, and you're just as nasty and hard-hearted and suspicious and mean as, as pusely. And she wept to think of her hardness of heart. He will never give me a chance to say I'm sorry, she thought. And really, she might have spoken kindly to the poor man and told him that she was much obliged to him, but that he really mustn't ask her to drink porter with him. But it's all over and done now, she said to herself, as she sat at her window on Saturday night. And then she looked at the cornice and saw the faithful little pewter pot traveling slowly toward her. She was conquered. 
This act of Christian forbearance was too much for her kindly spirit. She read the inscription on the paper. Porter is good for flowers, but better for folks. And she lifted the pot to her lips, which were not half so red as her cheeks, and took a good, hearty, grateful draft. She sipped in thoughtful silence after this first plunge, and presently she was surprised to find the bottom of the pot in full view. On the table beside her, a few pearl buttons were screwed up in a bit of white paper. She untwisted the paper and smoothed it out, and wrote in a tremulous hand, and she could write a very neat hand. Thanks. This she laid on top of the pot, and in a moment the bent two-foot rule appeared and drew the mail carriage home. Then she sat still, enjoying the warm glow of the porter, which seemed to have permeated her entire being with a heat that was not at all like the unpleasant and oppressive heat of the atmosphere, an atmosphere heavy with the spring damp. A gritting on the tin aroused her. A piece of paper lay under her eyes. Fine growing weather, Smith, it said. Now it is unlikely that in the whole round and range of conversational commonplaces there was one other greeting that could have induced the seamstress to continue the exchange of communications. But this simple and homely phrase touched her country heart. What did growing weather matter to the toilers in this waste of brick and mortar? This stranger must be like herself, a country-bred soul, longing for the new green and the upturned brown mold of the country fields. She took up the paper and wrote under the first message, Fine. But that seemed curt. For, she added, For what? She did not know. At last, in desperation, she put down potatoes. The piece of paper was withdrawn and came back with an addition. Two missed for potatoes. And when the little seamstress had read this and grasped the fact that mist represented the writer's pronunciation of moist, she laughed softly to herself. A man whose mind at such a time was seriously bent upon potatoes was not a man to be feared. She found a half-sheet of notepaper and wrote, I lived in a small village before I came to New York, but I'm afraid I do not know much about farming. Are you a farmer? The answer came. Have been most everything. Farmed a spell in Maine. Smith. As she read this, the seamstress heard a church clock strike nine. Bless me, is it so late? She cried, and she hurriedly penciled, Good night. Thrust the paper out and closed the window. But a few minutes later, passing by, she saw yet another bit of paper on the cornice, fluttering in the evening breeze. It said only, Good night. And after a moment's hesitation, the little seamstress took it in and gave it shelter. After this, they were the best of friends. Every evening the pot appeared, and while the seamstress drank from it at her window, Mr. Smith drank from its twin at his, and notes were exchanged as rapidly as Mr. Smith's early education permitted. They told of each other's histories, and Mr. Smith's was one of travel and variety, which he seemed to consider quite a matter of course. He had followed the sea, 
He had farmed. He had been a logger and a hunter in the main woods. Now he was a foreman of an East River lumberyard, and he was prospering. In a year or two, he would have enough laid by to go home to Bucksport and buy a share in a shipbuilding business. All this dribbled out in the course of a jerky but variegated correspondence, in which autobiographical details were mixed with reflections, moral and philosophical. A few samples will give an idea of Mr. Smith's style. I was one trip to Van Diemen's land, to which the seamstress replied, It must have been very interesting. But Mr. Smith disposed of this subject very briefly. It weren't. Further, he vouchsafed, I seen a Chinese cook in Hong Kong could cook flapjacks like your mother. A missionary that sells rum is the meanest of God's creatures. A bullfight is not what it is cracked up to be. The dagos are worse than the brutes. I am six one and three quarter, but my father was six foot four. The seamstress had taught school one winter, and she could not refrain from making an attempt to reform Mr. Smith's orthography. One evening, in answer to this communication, I killed a bear in Maine, six hundred pounds weight. She wrote, Isn't it generally spelled B-E-A-R? But she gave up the attempt when he responded, A bear is a mean animal any way you spell him. The spring wore on, and the summer came, and still the evening drink and the evening correspondence brightened the close of each day for the little seamstress. And the draft of Porter put her to sleep each night, giving her a calmer rest than she had ever known during her stay in the noisy city. And it began, moreover, to make a little meat for her, And then the thought that she was going to have an hour of pleasant companionship somehow gave her courage to cook and eat her little dinner, however tired she was. The seamstress's cheeks began to blossom with the June roses. And all this time, Mr. Smith kept his vow of silence unbroken, though the seamstress sometimes tempted him with little ejaculations and exclamations, to which he might have responded. He was silent and invisible, Only the smoke of his pipe and the clink of his mug as he set it down on the cornice told her that a living material smith was her correspondent. They never met on the stairs, for their hours of coming and going did not coincide. Once or twice they passed each other in the street, but Mr. Smith looked straight ahead of him, about a foot over her head. The little seamstress thought he was a very fine-looking man, with his six-foot one-and-three-quarters and his thick brown beard. Most people would have called him plain. Once she spoke to him. She was coming home one summer evening, and a gang of corner loafers stopped her and demanded money to buy beer, as is their custom. Before she had time to be frightened, Mr. Smith appeared, whence she knew not, scattered the gang like chafe, and collaring two of the human hyenas, kicked them with deliberate, ponderous, alternate kicks until they writhed in ineffable agony. When he let them crawl away, she turned to him and thanked him warmly, looking very pretty now, with the color in her cheeks. But Mr. Smith answered no word. He stared over her head, grew red in the face, fidgeted nervously, but held his peace until his eyes fell on a rotund Teuton passing by. "'Say, Dutchie!' he roared, 
The German stood aghast. I ain't got nothing to write with, thundered Mr. Smith, looking him in the eye. And then the man of his word passed on his way. And so the summer went on, and the two correspondents chatted silently from window to window, hid from sight of all the world below by the friendly cornice. And they looked out over the roof and saw the green Tompkins Square grow darker and dustier as the months went on. Mr. Smith was given to Sunday trips into the suburbs, and he never came back without a bunch of daisies or black-eyed Susans, or later, asters or goldenrod for the little seamstress. Sometimes, with a sagacity rare in his sex, he brought her a whole plant, with fresh loam for potting. He gave her also a reel in a bottle, which he wrote he had made himself, and some coral and a dried flying fish, which was somewhat fearful to look upon with its sword-like fins and its hollow eyes. At first she could not go to sleep with that flying fish hanging on the wall, but he surprised the little seamstress very much one cool September evening when he shoved this letter along the cornice. Respected and honored madam, Having long and vainly sought an opportunity to convey to you the expression of my sentiments, I now avail myself of the privilege of epistolary communication to acquaint you with the fact that the emotions which you have raised in my breast are those which should point to carnubial love and affection rather than to simple friendship. In short, madam, I have the honor to approach you with a proposal the acceptance of which will fill me with ecstatic gratitude and enable me to extend to you those protecting cares which the matrimonial bond makes at once the duty and the privilege of him who would at no distant date lead to the hymeneal altar, one whose charms and virtues should suffice to kindle its flames without extraneous aid. Remaining, dear madam, your humble servant and ardent adorer, J. Smith. If not understood, will you marry me? The little seamstress seized a piece of paper and wrote, If I say yes, will you speak to me? Then she rose and passed it out to him, leaning out of the window, and their faces met. And those are our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed The Nice People and The Love Letters of Smith by H.C. Bunner. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time.